You can be seated. Max, I'm relieved that you said that because when I was looking at the bulletin this week, I'm like, I do not recognize this song, but thank you for, for uh, bringing that one to us. We, we appreciate it. Um, you know, it, it really is uh, amazing to consider the, the humility uh, of Christ. And one thing that, that Max said last week uh, in his sermon was, you know, it's not that Jesus came to earth and now the Father kind of like begrudgingly uh, has accepted us. It was the Father's love that sent Jesus uh, to earth. And because uh, we know that our Father loves us, one of the privileges that we have is going to Him in prayer, knowing uh, that He hears us and knowing that uh, He loves us. And so we can bring uh, all of our requests uh, to Him. And so we're going to do that now together uh, as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled and, and joyful as we continue through this Advent season. Lord, we give thanks as we consider our gentle and lowly Savior coming to a sinful and suffering world, bringing good news of great joy for all people, good news that we so need and good news that we so long for and good news that can be easy to forget. Lord, we do so desire things to be made new. We desire that, that we ourselves will be made new, as we confessed earlier. And we thank you for the promise of Advent, remembering that Israel waited so long for their Savior to come, but that you were faithful, and he did indeed come. And knowing that even as we wait for our Savior to come again, that you are surely faithful to accomplish this. And so we come to you with longing and with expectation as we consider our struggles, we consider our needs before that great day comes. Lord, we pray for the needs of our church family this morning. There are many. Lord, we pray this morning for Matt and Laurie and the whole family as they await the triple bypass surgery tomorrow for Matt's father, Lester. Lord, we also pray for Lester's wife, Barbara, and we pray that you would bring peace and comfort as the surgery approaches. We pray that the surgery would go well, that you would heal Lester, and that you would help the whole family to hope in you during this uh, trial. Lord, we also pray for Jim and Lisa, as we are so sorry to hear and, and mourn along with them the loss of Lisa's brother, Doug. Lord, we also pray for Doug's wife, Holly. We pray that you would comfort them. Pray you would please help them, Lord. Please bless Lisa as she grieves and also shares the love of Christ with her family. And Lord, we know there are many others who are struggling and suffering in different ways this morning. We pray that you would uh, be with those who are suffering mental anguish this morning, be it anxiety or depression or OCD or many other trials, or we pray that you would bring healing and renewal and comfort to those suffering in this way. Lord, we also pray that you would continue to deepen and grow us as a church that, that trusts in you and is formed by your word, by your spirit. We continue to pray that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would be evident among us, and today we pray that you would grow us in self-control. Lord, please keep us from quickly giving in to, to things like self-righteous anger, especially with those closest to us. Lord, help us to be slow to speak. Help us to be quick to listen. Help us to steadily trust in you no matter what the circumstance. And Lord, even as we look for you to continue your work, we give thanks for all that you are doing here at Meadowcroft. Lord, there's so much evidence of your grace at work here, and we are thankful for that. We thank you for the ways we have the opportunity to disciple and care for one another Lord, we thank you for the friendships in this room, and especially for the friendships that, that transcend social background and political party and generation. Lord, we thank you for the relationships that can only be explained by the gospel. 
And we pray that you would grow and deepen these friendships and these relationships among us. And Lord, we of course pray not just for Meadowcroft, but for your church here and around the world. Lord, we pray for churches in our area that love people, that point them to you. Lord, today we continue to pray for Epiphany Church in Philadelphia. We thank you for this outpost of your kingdom, for their faithfulness to love you, to love their neighbor. We pray for their pastor, Eric Mason, for all of their leaders and members as they follow you. And Lord, we consider not just the church here in this nation, but the global church as well. And as we always do, we pray especially for those who are persecuted because of their faith and trust in you. Lord, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are dealing with persecution, many of them from Islamic extremists. Lord, we pray for protection. We pray for continued hope in you. And we pray for our missionaries, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being behind them in financial support and prayer. And we thank you for Hugh and Martine Wessel and their ministry in France. And we pray for their family. We pray that their children will walk with you. We pray for the church and seminary that they serve with. Lord, we especially pray for the family of one of the pastors they serve with as they mourn the loss of a, of a young wife and mother in the family who died this week of cancer. Lord, please help Hugh and Martine to care well for this family. And Lord, we continue to pray for the ministries that come alongside and serve the church. We continue to pray for the ministries of Crew and Young Life in our area. We pray for Crew's upcoming winter conference that many students will be able to come, that you administer to them in their time together. And we thank you that you call your church to be a light for you in, in so many different nations and contexts, both now and throughout history. And so we do pray for where you have called us. We pray for our country, for the leaders in our government. Please bless President Biden and Governor Wolf, so many others as they serve. Give them wisdom. And Lord, we also pray for our courts. We pray in particular for wisdom as cases involving abortion are considered. Lord, we pray that the unborn would be protected in our country. And we pray that your church will be a place that embraces the responsibility and privilege of caring for parents and caring for children in difficult and sometimes desperate situations. Lord, would you please reverse this in our country? And as we look to you to encourage us and shape us and help us to run the race set before us, we look to your word. We are so thankful that you are not a silent God. We thank you for authoring and preserving your word for us. We give thanks for the many who have suffered greatly to preserve the Bible for us, that you work through them, Lord, so that today we could hear from you. And Lord, we thank you for Max and for the time and the work that he has put into today's sermon, as he does every week, and we pray that you would help him to preach your word clearly and faithfully and joyfully today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Well, we are continuing our walk through the Gospel of John. And, uh, oh, um, yeah, I see people leaving. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just in case you don't know why people are heading out the door, uh, I don't think it's because they don't want to hear the sermon. Uh, probably all of them are taking their children to children's church. So uh, if you have a child in here who is uh, ages four through first grade uh, and they would like to join, we have uh, a children's church activity going on uh, out to, to my right and your left. And if you haven't signed in, uh, parents, please go and, and sign your child in before they head in there. 
We are going through the Gospel of John, and um, we are also kind of entering into uh, an Advent season as well. We had a, a, a text that we read earlier, an Advent text, and, uh, and obviously we're decorated for Christmas. So, um, you know, hopefully we will see how, how this high priestly prayer that we're going to be looking at over the, the coming weeks uh, kind of fits in with Advent themes. As you know, if you've been here, uh, we have been looking at the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus and his now 11 apostles, since Judas has gone out into the night to find, uh, uh, gather up a militia, essentially, to uh, arrest Jesus, he's gone out and Jesus has continued to share with these 11 men, these 11 men who are deeply troubled they're deeply troubled because of what Jesus has been sharing with them. And, and yet, as we saw, as we closed out chapter 16, he ended what he said to them with this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we understand that this was said in context of in mere moments, really, Jesus will be arrested. He will be taken away, tried in a kangaroo court, convicted of blasphemy and sent to a gruesome death on the cross. And nevertheless, he says, I have overcome the world. We enter now into what is called the high priestly prayer. It is Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture. Our text this morning is John chapter 17, and we will be looking this morning at the first five verses. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up. We'll be looking at uh, verses, uh, in particular each uh, verse. And if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along as I preach, if you look in the seat in front of you, you'll find one underneath there, and you'll find our passage on page 903. John chapter 17 Verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As I said, this prayer is called the high priestly prayer. I think, really, if you want to label this prayer, you could label this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. Now, we typically call a prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer. It's what we've come to know it as, and that's the prayer that he teaches to his disciples, and we all know it by heart. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, we typically know it in the King James Version, in fact. But I think... If we're to be accurate, 
that we, it'd be more uh, uh, accurate to call that prayer the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer. Jesus gives that prayer to his disciples as a model prayer for them to pray, for disciples, not only those disciples, but for disciples throughout the millennia. It's a prayer that we ought to use as a template for our own prayer. After all, one of the things that Jesus says we ought to pray in that prayer is that God would forgive us our sins. And that's certainly not a prayer that Jesus would ever have to pray. This prayer, the one that we find in John 17, I think is, is really the Lord's prayer. It's, as I said, Jesus' longest recorded prayer. The, the Gospels tell us that Jesus went away and prayed a lot. As you read through the Gospels, you find Jesus going away and going by himself and getting away from the crowds or going up on a mountain and, and spending hours and hours and hours in prayer. But oftentimes, most of the time, we don't know the content of that prayer. We only know that he prayed for hours. This prayer, I'll show you in a moment how it can kind of be a template for our own prayer, but, but really this prayer is not a model prayer for us. This prayer is a prayer that only Jesus can pray. It's a prayer unique to him. And it is called the high priestly prayer for good, for good reason. We see in this prayer many statements involving intercession. And when we think of the role of priest in the Old Testament, we see the priest as an intercessor for the people of God. And in fact, the high priest, of which there was only one, was the one person in the Old Testament who could enter into that sacred room in the tabernacle that was called the Holy of Holies. When you think of the, the tabernacle and the way that it was designed, there were people that were allowed into certain areas of that area, that whole tent area, but the further in you got, the further you got to God's presence. And the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube of a space. And in that Holy of Holies was housed the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the room, if you will, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple where God's presence resided. Now, God is omnipresent, but he made his presence and reflected his presence in that room, and, and therefore no one could enter into that room lest they die immediately, entering into the presence of God, being sinful. But God set aside one man called the high priest, and that man he designated as the one person in all of Israel who could enter safely into that room, but he only one day out of the year. That day was the day of atonement. And the high priest could go into that room on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, when the high priest entered that Holy of Holies, he would utter a prayer. And the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, would pray, if you will, sort of in concentric circles. The high priest would begin by praying for himself. He would pray first for himself and for his own ministry. And then the high priest would pray for those closest to him. He would pray for his immediate family. 
that God would save them and, and rescue them and, and help them to honor God as he ought to be honored. And then, lastly, the high priest would pray for all the people of Israel. And so his prayer went out from himself to his family and those closest to him into the rest of the people of Israel. And when we look at this prayer, as we will again be looking at it more closely as the weeks go, as Jesus is now on the verge of his own day of atonement, if you will, when he is not only the high priest, but also the sacrificial lamb of God. Jesus prays as the high priest prayed on the day of atonement. He prays, first of all, and we'll be looking at today in verses 1 through 5, for himself. And then in, in verses 6 through 19, he prays for those closest to him. He prays for his immediate apostles. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all the people of God through all the ages who would ever come to faith through the word of the apostles. Now, as I looked at the overall structure of the prayer, I found it interesting that Jesus, on the verge of his crucifixion, on the verge of what will be by far his deepest and hardest trial, he prays this prayer, and most of the prayer is not for himself, but for others. You just, that struck me. I mean, if you think about your own prayer, as, as you pray, and, and hopefully most of you pray on a regular basis, hopefully you pray daily, but as you pray, who do you generally pray for? And if you're like me, generally speaking, you pray for yourself. You pray for things that are worrying you or things that you're dealing with or things that you're struggling with or things that you have to do that day. And, and so you offer those up to God. And, and then if you go beyond that, you pray for your family. You pray for those closest to you, your, your closest friends or your family. What's interesting is that Jesus following the high priest, then prays for all of his people throughout the ages. And it struck me that if I am going to use this prayer as a model prayer, that, that perhaps I ought to start weaving into my daily prayer, not only prayer for myself and for my family and my closest friends, but also prayer for all of God's people throughout the world the church outside of this church. In fact, even for the people who are members of this church. When I think of my daily prayer to, to grab a church bullet or a church uh, membership, uh, what do you call them? Membership directory. To grab a directory, to have it beside you and to then spend part of your time in prayer going through the directory and praying for your fellow members in this church. And then if you want to pray outside of this church, there are websites that you can go on. Operation World is one that I use. You can go on Operation World every day. They give you a prayer that you can pray for Christians in every nation around the world, a different nation every day, 365 days a year. But let's look at the content of the prayer. He begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. Now, as you read through the Gospel of John, 
What you see is this thread going through the gospel that is mentions a number of times this hour. That there is an hour that is to come. We find it, in fact, uh, right before Jesus' first sign, his first recorded miracle, the turning of water into wine, right at the start of his ministry. He hadn't even yet gathered all of his disciples to him. He has this small band that's followed him down uh, into this area of Cana. And we see in, in John chapter 2, right here, that, that this, at this wedding, they have run out of wine, and, and it was important to have wine. It was a major stain, if you didn't, on, on, the, on the groom. And so Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, comes to him and says, look, they have no wine. And Jesus' answer is interesting. He doesn't say, okay, I'll take care of it, even though that's, that's what he does as he turns water into wine. His answer initially is this, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Right here at the start, we, we hear him talk about some hour that hasn't yet come. And then, and then later in the Gospel of John, we, we find in, in John chapter 7 that, that Jesus is teaching and he's teaching things that people are starting to grumble about and they don't like hearing and, and they don't like the way he's interpreting Scripture. And so uh, Jesus says, Look, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you don't know. I know him, for I came from him and he sent me. And then it says, so they were seeking to arrest him. They didn't like what he was saying, but then it says this, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, we find again Jesus saying things that people don't like. And as he speaks these things in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, it says, no one arrested him, however, obviously they were seeking it again because his hour had not yet come. So we, we have this theme about this hour. And what we see here is that Jesus came to earth to fulfill a specific mission. And that this mission was going to be fulfilled at a specific time. And Jesus, furthermore, knew what his mission was. He knew exactly what, when the time would be and when it wasn't. He had this awareness. And what we see is that until that time arrived, Jesus could not be harmed. He couldn't be arrested. He couldn't be killed. He couldn't be stoned. He couldn't be thrown in jail. Nothing could happen to him. God providentially protected him until his time arrived. What we see here in this prayer, is that Jesus' hour, this time, is also the time for his glorification. His hour is also a time for his glory. We see this actually, not only in this prayer, but we see him mention this before he prays here. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, in what we call the triumphal entry, as he enters in uh, before this time in the upper room, in John chapter 12, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then one of the first things that we find in, in the upper room before Jesus washes his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, it says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. 
And in John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, it says, when he had gone out, meaning Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in him. We see that this hour is the time for Jesus' glorification. And he says that here, glorify your Son. Father, the, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now notice, first of all, since Jesus has already said the time has come, the hour has come, the time has come, in fact, for me to be glorified and for God to be glorified in me, he's already made these statements. Isn't it interesting then that Jesus then prays for these things? Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows for certain that it's happening now, that God will be glorified, that he will be glorified, and yet, before it happens, he asks God to make it happen. Jesus did this earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 11. Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick, his friend. And rather than leave right away, Jesus hangs around for a while to ensure that Lazarus is not only dead when he arrives, but that he's been dead for four days. Because Jesus knows ahead of time what he's going to do. And Jesus even says it. He looks at his apostles, he says, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's speaking of his death. And then when Jesus arrives, Martha falls and she's crying and she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks at her and he says, without wavering, your brother will rise again. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's certain of it. He knows he's even planned and worked it out so that it will happen. And nonetheless, before he calls out to Lazarus to come out of the tomb, Jesus says, when they took away the stone, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Which means that Jesus has already been praying, Father, may this happen. As with the raising of Lazarus, Jesus knows this hour has come. He knows this hour will bring glory to him and the Father, and yet he prays that this will happen. How many things, Christian, do you know for certain are going to happen? Let me humbly submit to you that the only things that you know for certain are going to happen in the future are those things that are revealed in here. You know nothing else about the future. You don't even know if you're going to get home today. Do you ever pray for the things that you know are going to happen? Do you ever open up God's word? As Jesus said when he gave you the disciples' prayer, pray, our Father who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed. We know his name is going to be hallowed. We know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Jesus says, pray for that. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that's going to happen beyond a shadow of a doubt. One day, Jesus is going to remake this world and his will will be perfectly followed in a glorified and new heaven and new earth. And yet Jesus said, pray for those things. Do you pray as Jesus did for things that you know will happen? One scholar says this, the fact that Jesus prays for what he knows for certain will happen 
must add impetus to our prayers. The certainty of an impending event or a divine promise removes neither the difficulties that may have to be faced with their realization, nor our need for sustaining strength under such trials. God will be glorified in the means as well as the ends. Jesus prays for what will happen, and what will happen is that Jesus will be glorified. And so Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son. Now, this is a gigantic request. Father, glorify your Son. And that's because as you look through the New Testament, in fact, all you need to do is is look at one of our Advent texts that oftentimes is read, and you'll hear it read Christmas Eve. The angels went away from the shepherds into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem. See this thing that's happened that the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. In Scripture, you find that there is one person who is worthy of praise and honor and glory and worship, and it is God and God alone. In fact, our call to worship earlier Uh, that we read at the beginning of the service, Isaiah 42. What does it say? Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord and that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God has a glory that belongs only to him. And yet Jesus, in this prayer, acknowledging even in this section that there is only one true God, yet says, Father, give me the glory that you and I shared from before the world began. Jesus has claimed many times and in many ways throughout this gospel that he is the I am. And yet right here at the beginning of this prayer, he is saying, I share glory with God the Father. In that moment, Jesus is saying he is both going to receive glory from God the Father and that he will give glory back to God the Father. How? Well, in verse 2, he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now notice here, not only in verse 2, but in verse 1, that that Jesus here shifts and, and, and speaks in the third person. I wonder how many times you do that. I don't think I've ever done that. When I'm praying to God and I say, uh, Lord, help me to prepare this sermon this week. Lord, help me, give me Uh, wisdom and insight. Lord, help me. Give me courage as I preach. I never say, Lord, help the pastor of Meadowcroft to prepare well this week. Lord, I pray that you would help Max Benfer as he prepares the sermon this week. I, I have never prayed that way, and yet Jesus is doing it. 
Now, he doesn't do it the whole time. He, he shifts and says, I and me throughout there. But, but here, notice, he's, he begins by speaking in third person. And in verse 1, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Why is he speaking this way? Why, why specifically that section? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I think when Jesus is saying glorify your son, he is speaking there as the only begotten eternal son of God. God has one son, one only begotten son, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ from all eternity that we see in John 1.1. But then he shifts a little bit. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Why would he speak this way? Well, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' favorite self-designation is the son of man. The son of man. And I think when Jesus is talking about here that the son may glorify you, he is referring back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision. And he says, I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And what we see clearly is that this one who's called the Ancient of Days is God. Is God the Father. And then later though in Daniel chapter 7 he says this, I saw and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed jesus by calling himself over and over and over again the son of man he is saying i am that one in daniel chapter 7 and that's why in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, and thus far he's been silent, but the, the high priest looked at him and said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus looked at him and without missing a beat, answered him directly finally. And he said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It was then that the high priest tore his garments, an act showing utter despair and disdain for what was just said. And he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. And everyone there condemned Jesus as deserving death because they understood that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be equal with God. Jesus was saying, I am the son of man that Daniel saw. I am the one who will be given all power and authority over all nations and peoples. And I am the one to whom all worship will be given for all eternity. 
You can see here, I think, how Jesus' prayer right here at the beginning echoes Daniel 7. He says, the Son of Man, what we see in Daniel 7, he's given authority over all peoples, and Jesus says here, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, when was this authority, notice it's given to Jesus. The authority is given to the Son of Man. Now again, we, we have to be careful here when we're talking about something being given to Jesus, because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So Jesus as the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus in his divine nature always had authority over all flesh. Jesus as God is as eternal as the Father. He is as authoritative as the Father. There's nothing that the Father has that he doesn't also possess. So as the eternal Son, Jesus didn't have to be given authority at all. But Jesus as man, Jesus as man must, as the incarnate Son of Man, live and serve and do everything that God has sent him down to earth to do so that when he fulfills everything that God sends him to do, after that he will be crowned with glory and then he will be given all power and authority to rule all nations. We see this in verse 4. See, I glorified you, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled everything that the Father has given him. And so, what we see here is that Jesus is saying, I will be, when I'm crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and exalted, I will be given all authority to rule all nations. Notice here, though, how he states it. He says, I have been given all authority, and I have been given a people to save. Now, if on the one hand, Jesus must fulfill the work that God has given him to do as a human being, and then be glorified to be given these things, how can on the other hand, he say, you've already given them to me? Well, I think for that, we have to, we have to understand and, and piece together things that Jesus has been saying all along and, and other things that we find in the New Testament that points to an eternal covenant that Father, Son, and Spirit made before the world began. We call this covenant the covenant of redemption. I mentioned it in the Sunday school class this morning, which was on the covenants that we find in the Bible. The covenant of redemption, Herman Bavink who we're reading later today in our theology group, if any of you want to read more of Herman Bavink. When he speaks of the covenant of redemption, he says this, the covenant of redemption or the pact of salvation forms the link between the eternal work of God towards salvation and what he does to that end in space and time. The covenant of grace revealed in time that Jesus fulfills doesn't hang in the air but it rests on an eternal, unchanging foundation. It is firmly grounded in the counsel of the triune God. 
and it is the application and execution of it that infallibly follows. That's why Jesus can so certainly say, the hour has come, I know what's going to happen, I know what I'm going to do, I know how this is going to end, and I know it's going to bring glory to God even before it happens, because it was planned before the foundation of the world. D.A. Carson puts it this way, when Jesus says, for you granted him authority over all people, he is referring to a decision in eternity past to grant Jesus, authority over all people on the basis of his obedient humiliation, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. We see this first glimpse of what Jesus will do immediately after the fall in what we refer to as the first gospel spoken in the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, after Adam has broken covenant, after they've been cast out of Eden, after the curses of breaking the covenant are falling on all of humanity, God nonetheless throws this glimpse of hope into what he's saying when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, speaking of Satan, and you will bruise his heel. This seed of the gospel here is said, and it is said right there immediately after the fall because this plan of redemption had been worked out before the world existed. Jesus says in this prayer that it is the eternal plan of this covenant of redemption to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given the Son. And so you see this language in here in this prayer that Jesus is given all authority. Jesus is given a group of people to save. And he is given them in order that he might give them eternal life. How long do you think you're going to live? That's a question that's actually relevant to every person in this room. I don't care how old or young you are. The fact that you've been born means that one day you will die. We know that to be true. And we all know that we're going to one day face the grave. We're all going to die one day. And yet, how many times do we ever ask ourselves any questions about our upcoming death? You would think that if everyone that has ever lived eventually comes to an end and ends up in a grave somewhere, that we would constantly be asking ourselves, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do with my life between my birth and my death? What does it matter? What's my goal in life? And, and I find most often that, that nobody ever asks those questions. Yeah, it's interesting, I've been watching the uh, Beatles documentary uh, on Disney+, and I love the Beatles, they're one of my all-time favorite bands. I fall on the side of believing that the Beatles were great, regardless, but it's interesting watching this documentary because there's so much planning going on. If you've watched it, I mean, they're all there. They're trying to record this new album that's going to be Let It Be. Uh, and, you know, and then they're also working on songs that are, that are going to be on Abbey Road. And, and they're talking about, well, where are we going to have this concert? 
And then George Harris, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to get, if, if you haven't watched it, I won't give too much. But, but, but what's interesting is that there's all this intricate planning going on. And they're talking about this thing that they're all going to do, and they're all invested in it. And it's not just the Beatles, but it's all the people surrounding them. It's the producer, and it's, and it's uh, their PR guy, and they're talking about all this stuff they're going to do. And as I'm watching this, as if it happened yesterday, I'm realizing that most of the people in this video are gone. That all of their grandiose plans, in fact, two of the Beatles are gone now. And you're watching them talk about all this stuff as if it's the most important thing on earth that they get this thing just right. And what, what did it amount to? If that's all their life was about, then it really was all for naught. The only reason we even know about this is because someone dug up a bunch of old film. You know, if, if God gave us a way to earn eternal life, if God said, spoke from the clouds and said, here's how you can live forever and never die. If he said, all you have to do is pick up a pebble and take it to the top of Mount Everest and lay it on the peak and you have eternal life. How many of us would work our entire life schedule around making it to the top of Mount Everest? I think the line to get up to the top of Mount Everest and the guides and the Sherpas that take people would, would be the richest people on earth. And yet, what do we find here? We find in Jesus' prayer that eternal life is not something that is earned. Eternal life is a gift that is given. Jesus says, you have given me authority to give eternal life. Before you say, great, great, give me this eternal life so I can continue doing what I want to do for all eternity. Jesus defines it. What is eternal life? Verse 3. Now, if you look at the structure of these five verses, you can sort of see that they're, they're in the structure of what's called a chiasm. A chiasm means that the first verse and the last verse sort of say the same thing, and then the second verse and the fourth verse kind of say the same thing, and then the center verse, which is verse 3, is the center of everything that Jesus is saying here. And so the center of this section here is this, verse 3. Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God the Father, the only true God, and knowing Jesus the Messiah, whom God the Father has sent. Friends, that is eternal life. Eternal life is not gained, Jesus says here, not gained through the knowledge of God, but eternal life is knowing God. But specifically, eternal life is knowing God through one means, it's not knowing God through uh, meditation. It's not knowing God through looking at brilliant sunsets and feeling good. The only way to know God in the way that gives you eternal life is to know God through knowing Jesus as your Messiah. Jesus 
That's what's so interesting about how many ways he speaks about himself. I, me, your son, the son, but here, when he says eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, he speaks in third person again, but he specifically says it's knowing Jesus as the Messiah. The way to eternal life is to know God through knowing the incarnate Son who died for you. And if you, notice, if you know God that way, then notice what Jesus is saying here. If you know God through knowing Jesus as the Messiah, then, friends, you have eternal life already. It is your present possession. Eternal life is something that when we think of it, I think even as Christians, we think of eternal life more as something that will be granted to us one day. That that when we die or that when Jesus comes back or something like that, then we will get eternal life. And yet Jesus says that if you know me, and you know me as your Lord and Savior, then you know my Father, and to know us is eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that is why I believe Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's not that you your body won't physically decompose and, and one day stop. We know that will happen. But because you already possess eternal life, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus closes out this amazing prayer in verse 5 by saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You imagine being there and hearing that? You imagine being one of these 11 men, that this, this man, this man that, that you honor, this man that has treated you so well and, and loved you, is also a, a teacher. He, he's your rabbi. He, he's a guy who ate meals with you. He, he's a guy who tired out. He's a, he's a guy who needed to have time alone in prayer because the day was hard. He, he's a guy that not that long ago washed your feet. I think sometimes they could begin to just see Jesus as, as a good man. And if you're standing there and you hear him pray these words, think of the magnitude of that statement. Members of Meadowcroft, if you ever hear me pray these words in a pastoral prayer, you should call for my firing immediately. These are words that should only be spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. And what you realize when you hear him say this is that what he is asking for is something that he used to possess but has given up. He is asking that he be given something back that used to be his, but that he has given up. And we're celebrating Advent, and in Advent, we sing all of these Christmas carols about the wonder and the joy of the birth of Jesus. And so we should. It was a joyous 
night. And the shepherds did uh, return in joy. But I think sometimes we forget. When we think about the joy of the birth of Jesus, I think sometimes we don't focus enough on just how low he went. I think sometimes we don't understand what he left behind in coming to earth. Earlier we we sang, see amid the winter's snow. And it says in in that carol, lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who throned in heights sublime, sacred infant, all divine, What a tender love was thine, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. See, what Jesus is praying here is that this thing, this thing that he once possessed but has been lost, it must be gained back again and must be given to him by the Father. People talk about what is it that Christ lost when he came to earth. Well, it wasn't his deity. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Fully God. Jesus didn't lose an ounce of his divinity when he came to earth. Time and again, he said, I am the I am of the Old Testament. But what did he give up? When he came to earth, it wasn't his divinity. He gave up his glory. Jesus had glory from before the world began that he shared with his Father from all eternity. And in coming to earth, Jesus laid aside that glory and he clothed himself and veiled his glory so that he could be among us. But more than that, more than that, he gave up that glory that he had so that he could be born in a manger, not in a palace. You would think that if God, who dwelt in unapproachable glory, came to earth, he would be born as Caesar. If he had to pick any human being, he would be the king of kings on earth. He was born in a manger. He was born to a woman who probably never lost the stigma of having committed fornication before marriage. In fact, Jesus was told and sneered at by the religious leaders that you don't even know who your father is. Jesus had to live under that stigma his life, his whole life. He was born so that he could live a life of hardship as an Israelite, not a Roman, as an Israelite under Roman occupation in a time before we had the modern conveniences that we have now. He was born a man and gave up that glory so that he could be misunderstood, so that he could be argued against and mocked and threatened, and finally so that he could be beaten and scourged and sent to a cross to be tortured unimaginably. And you see, in this prayer, he is asking his father to reverse the humiliation. To reverse the humiliation and to once more restore him 
to the glory that he shared before the world began. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, if Jesus had this glory and he knows that he will be given this glory again, then what was the point of the middle? Why give up this thing, stoop down and lose it, and then only to gain it back again? Why not just keep it forever? Why in the world would he do all of this? And the Gospel of John gives us one answer. Love. Love, Christian, for you and for me, his beloved sheep. That's why he did it. There's an old hymn called Out of Ivory Palaces. And it says, Out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. This Christmas and today, let's remember that in his birth, Jesus willingly laid aside his glory. And he did it so that one day we, who are clothed in iniquity, can one day be enveloped in the glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this wonderful reminder that we have. Thank you for reminding us of what your son did. Father, may we never forget as we enter into this Christmas season what he gave up for us. Lord, give us a heart to honor and serve him all our days. We pray in his name. Amen.